I would invite you to turn this morning, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, to Mark chapter 9. As we continue to study the life of Christ as He is presented in this account. In Mark chapter 9, we will begin uh, with reading verses 30 to 37. So a much shorter uh, passage of Scripture to deal with this morning. And then we're going to sort of dive right in and try to glean some very practical truth from this this morning. So turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll read verses 30 to 37. But before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, pray very simply that you would do in our hearts, what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would illuminate us to the truth of your word and that you would write those truths upon our hearts. Speak clearly to us today that we would be transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus. In his precious and holy name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, we read, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, And they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. And then he's going to continue in verses 39 uh, and following that we'll read next week. We'll pick back up with verse 38 there, but he's going to continue and his discussion about discipleship. And that's really what this section is about. I think it is often misunderstood and maybe uh, misapplied to people's lives in the church, maybe preached upon uh, in not not the most correct way. But I, I think if we're careful to give attention to the context, we have seen that Jesus has been primarily now foretelling about his death, about the cross that is coming and the importance and the centrality of the cross to his life and to his ministry, and ultimately to the life of those sinners that are following him. And so um, he calls them to follow him in bearing their own cross. And so he begins this discussion about the nature and the cost of discipleship, that, that if you are going to believe in me and if you are going to follow me, then you must be willing and ready, prepared to Take up your own cross and follow me, not only in glory, not only in salvation, but in suffering and, and, and on this, this road of cross-bearing. And, and so he, then as we saw last week, he, he takes up, I think, uh, the issue of how is it that we get access to the power and to the presence of God so as to worship and be encouraged and be sustained on that road of cross-bearing? And the answer is that there is a very specific way that we must access the power and the presence of God in worship, and that is through the unique person of Jesus, that unless we access God through the person of Jesus, we uh, will not access him, and if we do, we will perish. 
Uh, Jesus must be standing between us and God's glory. Otherwise, uh, we will not be able to behold it. Um, and so, so there is this very specific way that we are going to access him. And so this is sort of, if, if you want to think about it like a lens, I think, that is focusing down a, a little bit more specifically. He, he is getting now to the nature of discipleship. To, to then what do these disciples of Jesus look like? That if you're going to follow me, if you're going to pursue me, if you're going to access my power and presence, if you're going to worship me, that these things must be done in a certain way. And that there are specific guidelines for how we access the kingdom and how we follow the king of the kingdom. And so this then is going to be the beginning of a section about discipleship. And so I think giving careful attention to the Uh, to the context here, helps us to understand the words of Jesus in this passage. Now, it's very interesting that in in order to talk about discipleship, we're first given this story about uh, ambition, where the disciples have this great ambition. And I would simply encourage you to think practically this morning as I ask you, what are your ambitions? What is it that you strive to be? And, and certainly most all of us, I think it's natural in some ways to the human heart, there is a natural inclination to strive to be better. There, there are definitely people who are lazy and uh, who, who maybe possess less of this drive. But I think somewhere in every human heart, there is a drive and a desire to be something that we are not yet. So that the student wants to progress on to the next grade or that the professional wants to get the next job promotion or the, 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 the person wants, you know, the family, they're, they're always looking to uh, be a better family and to have maybe the next level of salary or to get to the next type of home where they can be more comfortable or the next type of lifestyle. What, wherever you are and whatever the case is, whether it's in your job or whether it's in your schooling as you look to the next degree, whether it's in your family life as you look to the next steps that, that sort of come, I just want you to think about how ambitious a people we are. We, we long to be smarter. We long to be wealthier. We long to be more successful. We long to be... Uh, better. And, 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 and so the question I think becomes for us, is there such thing as godly ambition? And, and it brings the question then, is there such thing as ungodly ambition? And so we're going to try to glean a little bit about these ambitions, specifically what are to be the ambitions or ambition of Jesus's disciples. So that you see in the context of what does a disciple of Christ look like, as he begins to talk about that issue, he's going to help us to see that the disciples of Jesus must be ambitious for something. Something specific. Just like we must access the kingdom and the king of the kingdom by some specific means, there is a specific object that is worthy of our ambition. And we must be careful uh, to be ambitious for that, to have this type of godly ambition. Um, So what what do we labor for? What are we working for? What are we ambitious for? And is that ambition simply pride? Or, Or can that ambition be considered godly? So Jesus is going to teach his disciples about true ambition and what it means and how it relates to being a true disciple. But before he's going to just sort of lay out a teaching, um, I think he's going to identify with them. So before he's going to tell them they must have this certain ambition, which, by the way, is a difficult ambition, just to let you know, Jesus is going to identify with those disciples. He's going to identify with the ones that he's going to teach first and say, but I am not asking you to be striving for this thing, to be ambitious for something that I am not also ambitious for, that I do not also share. 
And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning then is the dichotomy of Jesus' greatness. The dichotomy of Jesus' greatness. This is in the context of a discussion about the greatness of the disciples, which among them would be the greatest. And we will turn in a few moments to consider their desire for greatness. But first, we're going to look at Jesus' dichotomy or the the dichotomy of his greatness. In other words, two aspects of his greatness that seem to be at odds with one another, that seem to not make sense. And I would encourage you that it did not make sense for the disciples, and it probably does not make sense, at least completely, to all of us. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 30. So they're on the road. They departed and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it. He did not want anybody to know. He's telling them not to share their knowledge of what he's been showing them and revealing to them. Why? Because they did not yet get it. You can do more damage sometimes in speaking than you can in being silent. And he did not want uh, wrong information being spread about by his disciples. Because as we see uh, in verse 32, they did not understand even his saying here. So they did not understand his being Jesus and being the Messiah that must die and must be crucified. They're puzzled by this. They're, they're, it's a problem for them. They're distraught over these things. And so he tells them, he, he's revealing them these things, and as they're on the road, but he encourages them again, do not tell anybody about these things. I don't want anybody to know it, because you're not going to give them the right information. And then 31, so he's going to seek to teach them. But he's going to teach them by identifying with them. It says, for he taught his disciples, and look, he does not simply begin with the teaching about what they should be ambitious for. He begins with teaching about his own ambition. Look at what he says in his own greatness. The son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Do you remember the words of Christ when he said, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of the one that sent me. Those are powerful words that that, that, that sound loudly in these verses as Jesus turns to his disciples before he can teach them about greatness in the kingdom and about their own ambitions. And he says to them again, the son of man must be killed at the hands of men. Now, here's where this would become problematic. If you were not with us, we've had a discussion previously about the title that you see there for the son of man. This is a specific title, and this is the problem that the disciples were having. The son of man would have been all too familiar a title to the disciples, as it is a reference to the prophecy in Daniel, the prophecy of the eternal king, the one that he looks and sees that is like a son of man, who will reign and rule for an eternity. That in his kingdom and of his rulership, there will be no end. So that is this, this glorious, majestic, authoritative figure that is coming. And this is the most popular title that Jesus uses to describe himself. Well, this would have been a problem, wouldn't it? Because you see the dichotomy then. The son of man from Daniel that is going to be the eternal reigning king must die. Do you see the problem? The son of man must be killed. That, that's an oxymoron, I guess, so to speak. But how can you be the authoritative ruling king, the eternal king, and be dead or, or be killed? How, how can you be subject to the discrimination and the abuse of those you were supposed to be ruling over? This is why the disciples would have had such a problem. He said the son of man is being betrayed. How can the king be betrayed by the ones he is to to be ruling? Betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. See, the disciples did not understand who Jesus really was 
because they were only able to see him as they expected him to be. Now, this is really important. I want to I really try to make this point clear to you. What is it that the disciples struggled so desperately with? It is how the teaching of Jesus about himself lined up with their understanding of the, what Jesus should be. They had set a certain expectation for what this Messiah should look like and how he should rule and where he should go and what he should be. And when he came and began to teach about himself, not even not by way of other folks, they heard that the Son of Man must die. He is giving them firsthand knowledge of his own person and identity and purpose, and they cannot understand it because they are too wrapped up in their own expectation. And you say, well, it was a biblical expectation. Yes, but it was tainted by sin. That Their, their view, their vision, their their their. Their, their spectacles, so to speak, were, were clouded. And they could not see clearly. They could not see what they were supposed to see. And so, yeah, they, they had this biblical expectation that the Messiah from Daniel, the Son of Man, would come and reign. They simply did not know how he would reign and, and how he would get there and in God's providence and according to God's plan what that rulership would look like. Mark Dever says this. Listen very carefully. By way of application for this point, Mark Dever says, You will never understand Jesus as long as you make him a projection of what you expect him to be. Now listen very carefully. If you're here this morning and you are desperately seeking to understand Jesus, you've got all these questions about religion and about Jesus, this man, and this message and this gospel, and you just don't get it. You don't understand. It doesn't make sense to you. You cannot, you cannot square things together. You cannot put the pieces together. It, it, it doesn't fit neatly in your box. The problem is they don't go in your box. As long as we come to Jesus projecting upon him our own expectations, he will never make sense to us. Religion and Christianity and the gospel, they will never make sense to us. And we will be riddled with problems and questions and concerns and discomfort. We will be riddled with them as long as we continue to do that. It is only when we subject ourselves to Jesus' own teachings about himself and his own expectations when we say to jesus you know what you were somebody and you came with a real purpose and my ability to understand is not to understand you as i think you should be and as i expect you to be but as i find you to be revealing yourself to be when when we stand back and say i am willing to let jesus be who jesus is I'm willing to let God be who God is, and I am willing to change my box and to, to adjust my framework so that the Jesus of the Gospels and the God of the Scriptures fit in and change my understanding. Guys, we've got to be willing to change and adjust our expectations. You see where the disciples were struggling? They did not understand how the Son of Man from Daniel would be killed. And like the disciples, we are struggling, many of us. Not only with who Jesus is, maybe you're well aware of who Jesus is, but let me ask you this. How many scriptures are there in, 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 in the Bible and doctrines that they teach that you just can't get? You look at it and you read it and you're like, this just does not make sense to me. I don't understand how this is possible. Let me ask you this. Is it because you're reading the scriptures through the spectacles of your own expectations? Is it because you can't square that doctrine with your own logic? With what you think is fair or right or just. 
As long as we bring our expectations and our understandings and our logical concerns to the table and we project them upon the scriptures and the Jesus of the scriptures and the doctrines, the holy doctrines of the Bible, we will never, ever, ever be in a place to understand them. We must come to the scriptures with the scriptures above us. And we must be willing to say, you know what? It may not make sense to me. But it's true because you are true and because your scriptures are true and because your word is true. And I'm going to adjust my understanding, even if I struggle with it, to say that's what it says. That's what it teaches. That's how it seems to fit. So that's what I'm going to go with. We cannot project our own expectations. So the dichotomy of Jesus' greatness poses a great problem for these disciples. They do not understand how he can be the son of man, how he can be the great and ruling king, and he can also be killed. And so I think that leads at least to some degree to the discussion that they're going to have. They are looking where? To what's coming. <laughs> they don't want to dwell on the, the death and the crucifixion and the killing and the betraying. They don't want to dwell on those things. They're looking to the glory that is coming, right? The way they think it should be reigning. And so they're, 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 fixed, they're fixed on sort of this idea of, of, of what's coming and the greatness and the glory that is coming. And so their concern is, well, whenever we get there, whatever that looks like, which one of us is going to be the greatest in that kingdom? <laughs> which one of us is going to be the, the most important? Which one of us is going to be the greatest? And so, so, so the story continues. It says they did not understand his saying in verse 32, but then they came to Capernaum. And he was in the house, and he asked them, what is it that you disputed among yourselves while we were on the road? So in other words, as they traveled along the road, the disciples had this dispute among themselves. They were trying to keep it hush because it's pretty disgraceful to be. Jesus is talking about giving himself up unto death. And you're talking about how great you can be and, and the glory that awaits you. So uh, I think it's probably pretty disgraceful, probably pretty embarrassing. You can only see, you know, them wanting to sort of stick their foot in their, their mouth, so to speak. And so they're only disputing this among themselves. But Jesus, uh, uh, in his divinity and knowing, knowing their hearts, he looks he says to them, what is it that you disputed on the road? And then, you know, verse 34, uh, but they kept silent. I mean, what else were they going to do? <laughs> what were they going to say? Oh, yeah, Jesus, um, in the midst of your teaching us about uh, that you have to die and that you've come to give yourself up unto death upon a cross, we're, we're, we're concerned as to who's going to be the greatest whenever we get to that glorified kingdom. You know, which one of us is going to be the most important? But it says that they kept silent. Why? Because for on the road they had disputed among themselves sort of this embarrassing thing that who would be the greatest. I think this is not a, not a pretty picture for the disciples there. I don't think this paints them in the best light, and rightfully so. But the first thing that I want you to notice is the response that Jesus has, or, or maybe the lack of response. Look at verse 35. They're, cru they're, 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 they're unbelievably embarrassed and can't believe their, sort of their, their own hearts and, and their own concern and ambition for greatness. But it says, and he sat down and he called the 12 and he said, if anyone desires to be first, let him be last of all and servant of all. What did Jesus not do? He never criticized their desire for greatness. That's, that's going to be our jumping off point here. So the dichotomy of Jesus' greatness, but then the desire for greatness among the disciples. He never criticizes their desire. And I think that that's really, really important. Why? Because I think the innate desire in men, ambition, to strive to be something greater. I think it's a godly desire. I think it's a God-given desire. Listen, when you turn to the book of Revelation, what do you find? That the servants of the king return with him to the new earth. To what? To reign with him. Our hope is not just that we would suffer. I think it's a good hope. 
and a good longing and a good thing that we desire to be great because we were created for greatness. That that God intends for us to be redeemed and restored and for the filth of sin to be removed so that we can be wonderful and great and majestic and righteous and glorified. So that we can come with our king, conquering and reigning with him. He doesn't criticize their desire for greatness. The problems are their desire for greatness, their ambition has been clouded and tainted and distorted by their sin. They're ambitious for the wrong things. They're ambitious for greatness in the wrong way. They're trying to get to greatness along the wrong path. And so I would ask you this morning to think carefully about the things that you were ambitious for. And to ask yourself, are these godly ambitions? Is this desire for greatness, desire for progress, is it a godly desire? Am I going about it the right way? Does it line up with God's plan for me and for my life? Or as Christ was, am I ambitious for God's plan and for his timing and for the greatness that he desires for me to have? Because I've got news for you guys. He's going to redefine greatness. In fact, the the definition that he's going to give for greatness and the path that he's going to lay out for his disciples about how it is that you are to be great as a disciple and to be great in the kingdom, it blows away all of the values that we have about greatness. It totally redefines and transforms our ideas of how to get ahead. Because what he says is, in order to get ahead, you got to get behind. In order to be first, you must be last. In order to be great, you must make yourself nothing. Doesn't seem to make sense to us. It did not make sense to the disciples. But this is the godly ambition that I think is important. That yes, we are to be ambitious for this rulership, this greatness in, in and through the person of Christ. But we are also to be ambitious for that greatness in the right way. And to be striving for that greatness and for that ambition in the, in the right way. So that, we are, so that we are able to express this godly ambition. Look at what he says. If anyone desires to be first, let him be last. Does it make sense? Of all, and if anyone desires to be first, let him be servant of all. You know, one of the lowest positions in all of societies that have ever come, including our own, is that of a servant. But remember, as Jesus is going to identify with his disciples, right? He's going to make himself last on the cross. Where God in the flesh is betrayed in the hands of men. Where the ruler is subjected to the rulees. And so he's going to identify with them. But think about this also. Think of all the examples, even in their time with Christ prior to the cross, where he identifies with this teaching about greatness, where he strived to be great according to the plan and providence of God by being nothing and making himself last. What about where he bore an apron and he got down and he washed the disciples' feet and he became their servant? So many examples of Jesus' servanthood in the scriptures. See, Jesus is not asking them to do anything that he is not completely willing and ready and has expressed in his own life and is able to do himself. He's redefining ambition and he's redefining what greatness is and how it is to be attained. He's destroying their value system and ours with his response. Now, by way of application to this, other than that you need to sort of check your ambitions at the door. And you need to carefully evaluate what those ambitions are and how they line up with greatness in the kingdom. How they square with Jesus' teaching that in order to be great, 
The greatness that I intend for you to have, it will only be acquired through making yourself nothing. However, it is important to to carefully pay attention to the reality here that Jesus is redeeming and is recreating and reorienting their desires. Now, now this is why this is important, because you know one of the most prevalent, even Christian persuasions in our day is to say that I feel this way and I don't want to, that I have this natural desire, how then can it be wrong? Whether it's inappropriate sexual expression, where, where we say, well, I can't help it that I feel the way that I do. I can't help it that I am inclined in the direction that I am. Whether it's to our anger or our rage or our fits of, of, of abuse to our families, our spouses and our children. We say, well, I mean, I don't want to be as angry as I am. If God didn't want me to be so angry, he would not have given me this desire. I have people all the time that come into my office when they're cheating on their spouse. Say, well, if God didn't want me to... If God didn't want me in this other relationship, why would he have given me such a strong desire of love and passion for this other person? Really? Listen, the testimony of God's word even here in this passage is that yes, some of our desires are godly and innate, but all of them are distorted by sin. And that we must not listen to the desires of our heart. We must change those desires to line up with the desires that Jesus has for us. So that Jesus just doesn't come to save us where we are and redeem us like we are and send us on our way doing just the things that we desire to do. Proverbs tells us the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Nobody. Nobody. Guys, listen, it may be a good thing that you desire to work, but if it comes at the forsaking of your family, that desire has been distorted. We cannot simply say, God has given me this desire, so I am going to desire it, and it must be good. We are going to be willing to sit at the feet of Jesus, to come under his teaching and his redemption, and have not only our hearts and our souls redeemed, but our lives of sanctification and our desires redeemed, changed. So the dichotomy of Jesus' greatness the desire of the greatness of the disciples. Jesus doesn't criticize that greatness. He simply redefines what greatness is, and then he reorients the path to that greatness and changes and shows them that that the desire is not completely wrong, but that it needs to be redeemed. And so we must be careful and attentive to listen to Jesus as he seeks to redeem and to restore and to recreate our own desires. But then finally and thirdly, the demonstration. Jesus identifies with them, by, by this dichotomy, this thing they don't understand, it's the very thing where he says, I am making myself nothing as I am going to teach you do. And then he teaches them about greatness and the desire that they have. And then finally, he's going to demonstrate what greatness looks like. This comes in the story here where he takes a little child. Look at verse 36. Then he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in, taking, taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children, my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not only me, but him who sent me. Now, very quickly, many people want to look at this passage and they want to teach us things about children. That's not primarily the point. Uh, this, This story seems to reach to our emotions on many levels. It's a wonderful story and 
these little children that come into the picture and we get these sort of warm, fuzzy emotions. And in fact, they want to turn both here and then as we're going to see in chapter 10, beginning of verse 13, the issue of children and discipleship in the kingdom comes up again. I think children were very important to the ministry of Christ. But they want to turn to these passages and sort of give us all the different uh, natural sort of instinctual things about children and, and even how we are to emulate those things in our life. Um, that, is not, that is not the point of this passage. Well, what is the point of this passage? It is to be a demonstration of what this type of service looks like. It is to be a demonstration of what this type of setting oneself aside looks like. Let me ask you this. If you serve those, you become a servant to those who can serve you in return. That's good. It's good. But when you make yourself a servant of those who can do nothing in return for you, it's true service. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's teaching them this difficult teaching about service, that if you're going to be great, you must be last, you must be nothing, and you must be servant of all. Namely, of the outcast, namely of the ones, the children, that cannot do anything for you in return. Children can't serve you, can they? They're totally dependent upon us. So what does he do? He demonstrates with a picture. He calls a little child to him. And this is remarkable because in their day, uh, children were not as appreciated as they are in ours. They were something simply to be put off in a corner and to be set aside until they reached their teenage years when they might gain some help and glean some understanding from the word of God when they became able to understand it. But, in, but until then, they were just to be set aside and sort of tolerated. Let us be very careful not to maintain any sort of that type of opinion because Jesus blows that value system out of the water because he is continually including children, even when it's not convenient, into his midst. And he uses them as the picture of those that we must serve in order to become great in the kingdom, that we must set aside our own desires to have our service returned, that, that our ambitions must be sort of set aside because we must serve those that cannot, we don't get any greatness from that. We do not get ahead by serving them. They do not make anything of us. They cannot pay us and they cannot pick up their towel and serve us in return. And he takes this little child and he sets him in his lap and he says, anybody who serves and receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Fascinating, isn't it? Two very important things. Look first. You must receive the child. You must serve the least in the name of Jesus. This is so important. Because there are tons in our culture that cry out for social justice, for the service of children, for the service of the widow, for the feeding of the poor, for their sake. For the sake of decency, in the name of all that is humanly good, for the sake of humanity, it's just right. Please understand the words of Jesus here, that doing things, serving the last in the name of the last, and in the name of humanity, and in the name of decency, does you nothing. It's no good. Unless we serve the least, unless we set ourselves aside and serve them in and through the name and power of Jesus, then the service is for nothing. But when by the power of Christ, in his name, we serve those that cannot serve us in return, look at what happens. When we receive them, we receive Jesus. What does this mean? Is Jesus likening himself to a child? No. <laughs> There's very little, maybe nothing in a child that, that could even be compared to Jesus. 
What's his point? Let me ask you this. If you serve the least that cannot praise you and that cannot serve you and cannot bless you in return, where does your praise and your blessing come from? It's from Jesus. And not only, he says, from me, you don't receive just me, but the one that sent me, my father. Do you see what he's saying? That as long as our ambition for greatness is done so that we receive the praise and the blessing and the glory and the progress from men, then it is not ambition, godly ambition for kingdom greatness. But that when we quit striving and, and, and remove our ambitions for the praise and the progress of men and for their blessing that they would serve us, when, when we remove that and we begin to serve the least to go to them, to set ourselves aside and to serve them in the name of Christ, that we don't receive praise from them. We don't receive blessing from them. We receive it from God. Guys, I don't know about you, but I would much rather receive praise from God than from men. I, I, I would much rather, I would much rather him be pleased with my work and with my labor and that he would see me as great and would be bestowing his grace upon me than that men would be doing those things. So let us set those things aside. Let us, let us stop being ambitious for the wrong things with an ungodly ambition. The desire for, those, for that greatness is good and is right and I think is God-given, but let us have that desire reoriented and redefined for us by the person and work of Jesus where our desire is not for human greatness, but for kingdom greatness that we would be great in the eyes of our Savior, that we would be great in the eyes of God, and that he would be working by his grace through us as we give, as we give of ourselves day in and day out to serve those that cannot serve us in return, then we are built up with the praise and the blessing and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And he will make us great. He will make us great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the truth that we find here. Thank you for... Uh, the fact that you do not simply save us and then sort of send us on our way, but that, that you take the time and the care to redeem our whole person, to revive and redeem and restore our souls unto glory, but also to redeem and to redefine our desires that are so tainted with sin. Lord, may we not seek to see you as we expect you to be, but, but may we sit under your teaching and under your feet as you reveal yourself to be and believe you as you are. And then may we be transformed by the truth of who you are and how we are to be great in your kingdom. May we look like genuine, authentic disciples of Christ, bearing our cross, trotting the path you've put before us, ultimately receiving the glory that you can give us. Encourage us to set aside ourselves to serve the least. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.